Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. When you think of the word church, what comes to mind? Is it like events, music, prayer, community, friends? Like what comes to mind? Maybe better, what are the essential traits of a church in your mind? A trailer? Yeah. For us it is. Well, by definition, the the Greek word translated as church in our Bibles is ecclesia, and it means an assembly. The church is defined by how it gathers. In the spiritual sense, we are gathered together by God, right? In the physical sense, we gather together on Sunday mornings for worship and throughout the week for mutual edification. And yet, the church cannot be defined only as a gathering. Back in the BC days, that's before COVID, right? People would gather for concerts and product launches and conferences and all sorts of other things. But none of these things, these gatherings, are churches in the strictest sense, right? I mean, people are gathering, and it's quite possible that they're actually worshiping as well. But that's not all that defines a church. In fact, all of those things have one thing in common. They're places that people go to get what they crave. For concerts, it's good music. For product launches, it's the next best thing. For conferences, it's maybe the next leg up in your career. In truth, some churches today act much more like concerts or conferences than churches. And it's really easy to to look out there in the rest of the world and go, those churches out there, they're the problem. It's easy to blame all those churches who cater to the consumeristic desires of our materialistic society, right? But those churches are made up of individual Christians who are happy to treat the church like a commodity or service that they're meant to consume. Some are deceived, sure, but all of them are comfortable. And if we're not careful as a church, those desires for cheap comfort and momentary pleasure are going to lead us into the same trap that so many other Christians have been led into. It's easy to look out there and blame those people even. But what if we looked into our hearts and were really honest with one another? I know for me, that desire for cheap comfort is there. And it's easy for me to go, okay, I'm going to do the comfortable thing. I'm going to do the easy thing. Second Timothy 2 Uh, Three through four says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In the passage that we're going to be in this morning, which is Mark 3, 31 through 35, if you want to start flipping over there. In that passage, Jesus gives us one essential trait of the Christian church. It certainly isn't the only one. The gathering is an essential trait of the Christian church. But it may very well be that this trait that Jesus gives us is the most important. I mean, if you get this point right, 
your personal fight for engaging in real church over that allure of having tickled ears will be far, far easier. In this passage, Jesus tells us the church is the family of God. Maybe you've always thought of church as a family. Maybe that's how you grew up. Maybe that's not how you grew up, but you know, you, you come around to the idea. Or maybe it's new to you, and you're, you're like, man, I've never been in a place that, a church that said, you know, we're family. But either way, I, I hope that by exploring what it means to, to be members of the family of God, by doing that, we'll be able to be more equipped to fight off the temptation for cheap momentary comfort and more motivated to live truly obedient, loving, and committed lives to a local body of believers. So why don't you guys stand with, the, with, with me, with all of us, as we read Mark 3, 31 through 35. This is our text for the day. It says this, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. He answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, or my brother, my sister, and mother. This is the word of God. May he bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, we pray that you would be glorified this morning through the preaching of your word. Convict our hearts of sin this morning, that we might be led to true repentance and faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would deepen our love for both you and our neighbor this morning. Lord, that the love that we have would not merely be a thought in our minds or a feeling in our hearts, but that, Lord, it would lead to action. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen that resolve. Help us to walk out the love that we have in our hearts and minds for our neighbors and for you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the church as a family, not just a gathering or a service or a commodity to be ex just consumed. Lord, I pray, that you would, I pray that you would do this. Help us to see the church as a family, particularly as your family. And we pray this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. So the church isn't just a gathering, and it's not just a worship service, it's a family. This essential trait of church reminds us that we are bound together by more than simple common interests. In that context, church becomes less about what I want and more about what the body needs. It's less about how I can be served and more about how I can serve others. We know this in our families, right? Everybody works, or should work, for the good of the others in the family. See, a concert, concert is a spectacle, but a church service is a lot more like family dinner. A, a club has shared interests, but a church has love that leads to action. And that's the first essential trait of the family of God, the church. It's love. I'm not trying to get all soft on you guys. Love is sometimes a hard thing, but it's true. At the core of, of everything we do as a church, there must be love. In the passage before us today, Mark is sort of closing the loop on an arc that he began back in verse 21 of this chapter. Previously, uh, 
Actually, on January 17th, we covered this. At the end of, of this passage, in verse 21 uh, that I'm referring to, Jesus uh, had returned home from healing a bunch of people, casting out demons. He had healed the man with the withered hand. And his family, quote, went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Like, man, Jesus is crazy. We got we to gotta get him in here. In verses 31 and 32 of the passage before us today, we see more of the same behavior. It says this, and his mother and brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mothers and your brothers are outside seeking you. They wanted to to grab him out of there. See, it's clear that despite having grown up with Jesus, having known him his whole life, his family definitely did not understand what he was all about. And yet, I don't want to paint a picture of his family as being unloving. They were clearly motivated by love to save him from the crowds that had gathered. It says in that passage I just referenced that he couldn't even get a bite to eat. <laughs> Can you imagine it, like being in the middle of a crowd for so long and just yelling out, hey, somebody, could, could somebody grab me some Subway? And, nobody, and everybody's just like, no, you're going to sit here and teach us. You're going to heal people. This is what you're going to do. It's a scary situation, right? To think about that. I don't know. I wouldn't want to be in that situation. And so his family looked at that and they're like, he's gone crazy. This is, this is kind of a bad situation. But despite the fact that their presuppositions were wrong, their motivations were loving, okay? And I think there's something valuable we can learn here from Jesus' mother and, and his brothers that really has become somewhat foreign to us in our postmodern individualistic society. Right? They, they didn't just love Jesus from afar. They didn't just feel love for him. They loved him enough to go after him when they were concerned for his safety and his mental stability. In our postmodern minds, we're happy to sort of place love and action on different sides of the world and in our minds and never let the two meet. We say, I love this person, and yet our actions often say otherwise or say nothing at all. True love is motivated to action, and a good family loves one another. Now, Jesus' earthly family might be a a good example of love leading to action, but I I think it would be really difficult for us this morning to hang our hats on that, okay? Like, that's not very good expository preaching, because that's a, a good example of this, but it's not really explicit. This is how you should do it, but the reality is that it just leads us to see how God has taught families to love. You see, we have a far greater example of familial love in God. In 1 John 4.10, John describes the love of God. It says that this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It says that's what love looks like. And in Romans 8.15, because of this sacrifice, It says, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And much like a human father is supposed to be an example to his family, our heavenly father is an example of love for us. He sends his Holy Spirit to transform our hearts even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He gives us grace upon grace, and he adopts us into his family to be heirs of blessings alongside Jesus. I mean, if this is the example that we have from our Heavenly Father, then church must be, must be 
more than a place we go on Sunday or a social club that we can drop into and out of at will. The church is a family, and it's not just any family. The church is a family that cares for one another. Locally, practically, that means we move toward one another, not away. We call texts and Slack messages. We have coffee with one another. We, even more, we pray for one another, encourage one another, and correct one another in love. We do all these one another's. Why? Because we love. But those things probably sound a little scary. The, the idea of correcting someone in love is probably the scariest of those, right? But the reality is all of those things are really hard in our modern society, in our individual lives. I mean, we're all so busy. It's hard to find time. It's interesting. I've been listening to a, a, a book in which the author argues that the pinnacle of modernity is to have everyone seeking their own highest good as determined by no one other than themselves. That's modern society in a nutshell. In light of that, that's hard to say, like, I'm, I'm going to encourage someone, I'm going to pray for someone, because encouraging, encouraging someone in the gospel is quite different than stroking their feelings of self-determination. Rather than telling someone how good they are, how about telling them how God has worked in them to produce good things? How about rather than praying for someone's success in their dreams without equivocation, we pray for those same desires, but at the same time, and perhaps most of all, that the will of God be done in their lives. And if necessary, that their dreams will be conformed by the Holy Spirit to whatever God has in store for them. What if we reminded one another that we aren't enough by ourselves, but in Christ, we have more than enough different, even encouraging people, even saying positive things is different than what this, girl, this world would have us to say. See, the family of God loves one another enough to sacrifice our selfish desires for more and better and comfort in order to pursue the highest good of others, which is explicitly laid out in the scriptures. It's for them to believe the gospel and walk in obedience to God. The family of God loves one another enough to do that. And that's the kind of love that God has shown us. Practically, you know what? That means that we need to take a little bit more ownership in the spiritual state of our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those in this local body. I'm not talking about just me and Pastor Brandon. Each and every one of us needs to take ownership in the spiritual lives of the other members of this church. What if you spent 10 minutes, 10 minutes, that's all I'm asking for is 10 minutes this week, and you reach out to someone else in this church just to pray for them, check in on them, or encourage them? I mean, it takes less than that, really. One or two intentional Slack messages, just a quick lunchtime phone call. In fact, here's homework. Whether you're here this morning or you're listening to us on the podcast, if you're a member of this church, I challenge you to find one person right now in your mind for whom you'd be willing to do that this week, for whom you'd be willing to reach out and encourage and just pray for. I mean, 
You might think, man, that's small. That's little stuff. It takes 30 seconds to send a Slack message. 10 minutes if you're a prolific writer like me. <laughs> but it's the small stuff that is often God's means of grace to others through us. Keep on saying it. It's the small stuff that counts. Of course, this love extends to those even outside our immediate church family. In a, in a few weeks, we're going to be inviting the community out to celebrate Easter with us at historic Pole Green Church. In that context, love means first inviting people, especially those who need the gospel. Because the reality is, like, having people there who know Jesus and are plugged into a church is, is great. We, we love to have them as guests. But they've already got a church family to be a part of. But if you know somebody who doesn't have a church family, somebody who doesn't know Jesus at all, they're the ones who need to be there. Love them enough to invite them to church. Easter's a good Sunday to do it. Second, we're going to welcome all those who come and genuinely care for their needs. That's what practical love looks like. And that's not just Southern hospitality, right? It's, it's a small reflection of the love our Heavenly Father has shown us. And if we were sacrificially bought by the blood of Christ, even while we were strangers and aliens to the family of God, then by that example, we must also extend that love to others. Must extend that love to others. See, love is an essential trait of any healthy family. And God has shown us what true love really is. By logical extension, we must conclude that this action-oriented, self-sacrificing, Christ-centered, others-prioritizing love is an essential trait of the family of God. See, back in our passage, Jesus' family obviously loved him, but they didn't fully understand the nature of the family of God. Love can certainly be found in this world, okay? Human families can love one another, even outside of Christ, people do great things for others sometimes. And those things are commendable. But love alone does not identify someone as a Christian, and it doesn't identify a church as a church. It's not just love. The family of God also obeys. Mark three thirty-three through 35, the end of our passage here today, says, and he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and sister and brother. I mean, before we get to the obvious, obvious question that all of you are probably thinking, or at least I think you might be, what is the will of God? What's the will of God for my life? It's a great question. But before we go there, I, I want to make sure we're all on the same page, okay? Jesus is not saying, if you do the will of God, only then will you become a member of the family of God. That's not how it works. Because if you read this passage in, in isolation, it's really easy to make that kind of conclusion, right? You read this and you go, okay, so if I do the will of God, then I will be Jesus' brother, sister, or mother. Easy enough. But the reality is that Scripture interprets Scripture. This is an important concept that we all need to grasp. It's easy for people to, de to deceive you with a one-off Scripture reference, right? 
I've seen it. I've seen entire theologies based on one passage that was taken in isolation. See, if something is, that's necessary to salvation or Christian living is unclear in one place, then it is necessarily made more clear elsewhere in Scripture, unquestionably. Titus 3, 4 through 5, makes clear what the ancient saints called the ordo salutis, or the order of salvation. Wherein they talk, he talks about, Paul, that is, talks about this idea of what happens first. It says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of, our God, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, not according to works. It's not clean yourself up and then you become a member of the family of God. No, it's you become a, me- a member of the family of God and you walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you. This whole thing means that righteousness does not merit adoption into God's family. In light of that, Jesus' message here is clear. The external fruit of salvation is obedience to God's will. Because what he's saying here is, okay, I'm, I'm looking around at the people who are doing God's will, and I identify them as my brother, my sister, my mother. But I, I think... Most of us in this room are probably on the same page here, I think. And you, what you probably want to do is get on to the, the question of, well, what's God's will for my life? I think we all want to know that to one degree or another. We've all asked this question. In fact, I've known several Christians to just become paralyzed, just unable to make a decision at all, simply because they're waiting on God to reveal his will in some sort of way that they've concocted that he must reveal himself. Providentially, however, God has graciously told us precisely what his will is for all of our lives, and it's right here in this book we're reading today. It doesn't involve closing your eyes, flopping your Bible open, putting your finger down on a random passage. Please don't do that. If you're like, that sounds like a fine idea. God is sovereign over even the dice roll. It also says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the question is, how do we discern God's will? If it's not by a random choice, random scripture verse, how do we do this? We read the Bible in context. See, the Bible is a wonderful wealth of wisdom as we try to discern God's will in a given situation. And honestly, I, I hope that over the course of our lives as a church together, we're going to cover every single one of those tidbits of wisdom. I don't even know if that's possible. But man, we're gonna try. It's going to be great. But I'm, I'm not going to try to do that in a single sermon because then it would be like Jesus trying to get Subway, right? Like this isn't, it's not going to work out. I'm going to get too hungry. Jesus had supernatural stomach apparently. I got to get you guys out of here at some point. So I'll condense it down into three things. Three basic precepts that will reveal the will of God in such a broad way that you can apply them to nearly every area of life. Isn't that nice? Three things. That's all we got to think about. Simple. Three things. First, God's will for you is to repent and believe the gospel. This was the message that Jesus came preaching at the very early stages of his ministry. If you want to see that, it's just in Mark 1.15. You can flip a couple of pages back. It's right there. 
And it's the message, the same message that we continue to preach today. God calls all men to repent and believe the gospel. If there's any theologians among us here, I'm not talking about the effectual call of election, okay? I'm talking about the free and genuine offer of salvation that's held out to all people in the gospel. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 says, First of all, then, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people and for kings who are in all, uh, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. This is the important part. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth talking about the gospel call that goes out to all people. Whether you'd call yourself a Christian or not at the moment, it might be wise for us to stop here and just even in this moment to consider if we are truly in Christ. Because if we get really honest with ourselves, and the, the reality we find is that we haven't actually trusted in Jesus. And that we've been doing this church stuff on autopilot because we think it's getting us into heaven or just because it seems like the good thing to do. Man, that's an amazing thing to realize that. I want you to listen to me today. It's an amazing thing to be honest with yourself on this point because false assurance is worse. And the reality is, if you've come to this point and you're going, man, I really have sort of checked out on this thing, and it, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I haven't believed in the past. Guess what? You're this close, this close to the kingdom of heaven. Because that's conviction. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, hey, repent and believe the gospel. And the reality is, if if you feel that way this morning, if you're like, man, like I do need to repent and I need to believe and follow Jesus, then do it. And we will happily baptize you and celebrate your conversion. Even if you're a member here, even if you've been calling yourself a Christian for years, because that's an amazing thing to repent and believe for real. And guess what? If we're all sitting in this room, we're going, okay, this isn't for me. I, have, I, I know that I am a Christian. I am secure in my salvation. Guess what? That's an amazing thing too. Because you just got to savor the reality of your salvation for just a moment. It's so easy every day to forget the peace and assurance that comes from true faith, isn't it? We work so hard and we, we try to figure out what we should do next and we stress out about all these things, but deep down there's assurance and peace and comfort that comes from knowing Jesus as Savior. So it's great to be in Christ and it's great to remember that even here and now. It's good to question. Ask yourself these questions. If only to arrive at the conclusion that yes, I am in Christ. Praise God. God's will is that you repent and believe in the gospel, and we have to get that right before we move on. But we must move on because true faith always begets good works. The second thing that God's will for you to do is 
God's will is for you to love him with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. According to Jesus, this is the first and greatest commandment. And to be honest with you, if, if you're in Christ, I have no doubt that you have a kind of love in your heart for God. But you should ask yourself how that love motivates your choices and actions on a daily basis. John 1, uh, 1 John uh, 5.3 says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Do you keep his commandments? Do you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength? See, love leads to action, and your love for God should impact how you work, how you play, how you lead, and how you follow, and so much more. I mean, laying aside just those four things I just mentioned, laying aside uh, how those might affect others, think of this. Consider how they might glorify God simply by reflecting his character. Even if no one else sees those as good things, Working hard glorifies God because he works hard in creation and redemption. It reflects his character. Playing hard glorifies God because you are trusting him to handle the things that could bog you down otherwise. Leading with a loving disposition glorifies God because he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Following in joy and submission glorifies God because Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient all the way to the cross. Have you ever had a life-changing decision before you and asked, does this help me love God more? How often does that play into your decision-making process? Do Do you sit down and go, how does this help me love God more? Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to start. The reality is that God saved you by the blood of Christ, and I know that you love him. So let's start putting him first in all things. Let's do it. Let's ask the question, does this help me love God more? But that love that we have for God leads us right back to where we started. The third thing God's will for you is, is to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the second commandment that Jesus mentions. He says, the first and greatest is that you love God. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not sure there's much more to be said on this point. I've kind of belabored it this morning. But I will say this. If, If you are in Christ, you have no good reason to live selfishly. You know that everything good you have is has been given to you. But you have every reason to show grace, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, and all those other things toward others. You have every reason to call people to faith and repentance whose sin is leading them to an eternity in hell. You have every reason to do it. You have every reason to prioritize your life in such a way that you leave room for worship, prayer, study, and generally following Jesus, not just by yourself, but with others. You have no good reason, no excuse not to do these things if you're in Christ. I listened to another audiobook recently uh, where the, the author essentially 
beats the reader over the head with that concept of highest good. And uh, this one was actually pretty good. But unfortunately, the, the man, as far as I can tell, isn't a Christian. He ended up missing one key piece of the puzzle. I hinted at it earlier. The highest good of the Christian is that which glorifies God the most. While this man's version of a person's highest good is self-defined, like any good postmodernist, the reality is that our highest good is God-defined. As a Christian, on your last day, if you could write your own epitaph, last thing people will read, what it says on your tombstone, what would you want it to say? There's a thousand things I think you could come up with, but I'm not sure that there would be much better for the Christian than he loved God, his family, the church, and the lost. The family of God does the will of God by loving God and their neighbors. These are the essential traits of the family of God. What a wonderful thing would it be if this church had the reputation of being people who repent from sin, believe in the gospel, love God with all they have, and care for others like family. You could have all the great theology in the world, but if we don't have love, we've got nothing. I pray we will never lose sight of this, the true nature of the family of God. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.